0: I am so thrilled that you're with us today and uh, I hope you are having a blessed Lent season right here. I hope uh, the Spirit of Christ is just showing up and, and blessing you. You are experiencing him in such a deep and meaningful way as you fast and pray or, or however you choose to participate or not. Just a reminder that we are inviting everyone, all of you to uh, join us in this prayer for our community. This is, this is a call from your pastor to, to pray with us for this church as we cry out to God to revive us in a commitment to love as Jesus loves, in a fresh commitment to, to humbly walk in unity as a body. And to have a passion to share the gospel with other people. And so uh, this is my daily prayer. I'm praying this for you. I'm praying this for your family because I'm telling you, when I think about the revival that will happen in our church, in your homes, in your hearts, I get so stinking excited I can't even describe it. So this is the prayer. Amen. Uh, we are in week three of our series Road to Resurrection. We're praying for revival. See, this is a little, this is a little double entendre, this is a, little, a little pun. Road to Resurrection is not just the resurrection of Jesus that we're going to celebrate on Easter. This is also the road to our resurrection, our revival that we are looking at here. If you're new with us, we've been exploring the book of Mark and what it means to follow Jesus. Now, that sounds super basic, right? But shockingly, how uh, Christians talk about following Jesus isn't always the way that Jesus talks about following Jesus. And so we kind of just decided, let's go back to the source material here and reframe the whole conversation, how Jesus frames it. This idea of a follower of Jesus, in in the Bible, it uses the term disciple, and a disciple is somebody that in Jesus' day, a rabbi would, would come to people and he would call a new disciple by saying, follow me. So Jesus is using a, a very traditional rabbinic call, follow me. And the idea was that as a disciple, you would follow that rabbi so closely, emulating every little part of his life. You, you would eat together, you would, you would serve together, you would celebrate together, you'd celebrate the Sabbath together. And that the goal was to become so much like your rabbi, so much so that there's this ancient uh, rabbinic blessing that would go something like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So that's how you would bless each other. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea was that you were following so closely that when he would walk, that he would kick up the dirt with his sandals and and that you would get dusty in all the most wonderful ways. Amen. So may we get covered in that dust of Jesus as we're walking. So today, if you have a Bible or an app or whatever you like to use so you can read along with us, we're going to go to Mark chapter four. Chapter four, we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures and you don't, I'm going to bounce around pretty fast so you don't have to go to all those scriptures with me if you don't want to, but Mark chapter four is kind of our home base. Um, it, this is a pretty well-worn passage. If you've been a church person for very long, uh, you've probably heard this parable. But again, there's always another layer to these things when we hear these things. So we never want to approach the text like we just know it, okay? We always want to approach Scripture curiously and ask the Holy Spirit, because I'm telling you what, Jesus is far more subversive and radical and beautiful, am I right, Daniel? Oh, man, then we can, we can even imagine. Okay, so here we go. Mark chapter 4, starting verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake, and so the crowd gathered around him. It was so large that he got into a boat, and he sat it out on the lake, and when all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Now, we're all Texans, so we know all about farming, right? So we know how farmers go. Uh, I'm sure you know. So, verse 4, he says, As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. This is the hardened path, like where people had been walking. And all the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but the soil was shallow. And when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plant, so they did not bear grain. And still other seed fell among, fell on good soil, and it came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Okay, so this farmer, he comes across different types of soil, three of which aren't very productive. One which is, and the one that is, is like very productive, very fertile. Okay, and verse 9 then Jesus said, hey, whoever has ears, let them hear, which is his way of saying, pay attention, lean in, because what I'm about to say, we could easily miss this. And so Jesus is telling us, pay attention. He says, then when Jesus was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked about the parable. Okay. So this is, this is super important, guys, over here. Jesus looks at these, the 12 and the others, and he says, verse 11, where are we? Oh, sorry, I'm on that one. Um, he says, the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So Jesus here in this uh, talk, he's, he's just distinguishing between outsiders and insiders and he's saying that the 12 and the others that he's talking to are kind of like the insiders but to the outsiders he he speaks in parables and then notice why he quotes from Isaiah 6 he says so that they may be and this is from Isaiah 6 so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and never hearing but never understanding otherwise they may turn and be forgiven which is really odd am I right If you're paying attention, it sounds like Jesus is saying, listen, the reason why I'm teaching in parables is because I don't want people to believe, which sounds super not very Jesus-y, right? (laughs) And you're like, hmm. It turns out this quote is a passage where God is calling Isaiah... The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. And and he's telling Isaiah, listen, your prophetic ministry is going to be to reveal the hardened hearts of Israel. Uh, And so to reveal, not to create, not to harden the hearts, but to reveal the hardened hearts of Israel. So it's interesting that Jesus pulls in this quote right here. Because it sounds like he's, at first it's like, okay, wow, God's going to, he's just going to reveal the hardened hearts of Israel. But then there's this bit at the end where it sounds like he doesn't really want people to get it. That's, That's odd. In verse 13, Jesus said to the disciples, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Which reveals to us this is a keystone parable. So we should probably try to understand this parable because apparently if you don't understand this, you're not going to get any of it. So this is really important to me. This tells me I should listen. Then he explains it. Verse 14, the farmer sows the word. Now we're going to find out later what that means, the word But for now, just keep in mind the word is the seed. The seed represents the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. So apparently the soil represents people. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away. The word was sown in them. And others, like seed sown in rocky places, hear the word. And at once they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, it lasts only a short time. When trouble and persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, as third soil, they hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown in a good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a good crop. So Jesus tells the disciples, he's distinguishing between insiders and outsiders. And he says, okay, insiders, they're gonna get the secret. Outsiders are gonna miss it because I'm gonna talk in parables. Now, I have always thought, confession time, that Jesus, when he's telling this parable, describing that what he is describing, the, these people, what he's, he's describing with the different soils, are the people in the crowds that he's preaching to, like the people throughout Israel that they come across. Well, not so fast, because (laughs) there's a number of scholars who argue, and I mention that because I I, I don't want uh, want to think I'm taking credit for, like, discovering this. But the idea is that perhaps the parable is not how I've always understood it, and even, I admit, taught it. Um, That this parable, that three soils are bad and one's really good, Is not just a cautionary tale of like, look at all the dumb people in the crowd, don't be like them, but rather what this is is a picture of the disciples. Hmm. Notice, the disciples are are portrayed in the beginning of the book of Mark uh, in a pretty good light. They receive the invitation of Jesus, They, they hear the invitation, they answer the call of Jesus, But if you start reading the Gospel of Mark gradually, more and more, they are the most confused people in the story, always. And it's the disciples who get this seed that's being sown and then snatched away by Satan. And the disciples are the ones who run away because of persecution. The disciples are the ones who fall away because of the deceitfulness of wealth and concern for other things. And the way Mark shows this is amazing. It really is. He's so brilliant. It's almost as if he had divine help. I don't know, in writing this gospel. Um, so if you're a Bible geek like me, you're like, yeah, this is amazing. And if you're a normal person, you're like, okay, cool point, but really I'm thinking about the food truck I'm going to hit after church. And I'm with you, I understand. So my job in the next few minutes is to totally dazzle you with how important the seemingly minor point actually is. Because what Mark does, he does all all over the place, okay? And look, this is gonna be really helpful to you as you read the Gospels, in your own study time for the rest of your life, as you read the the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We read these, and the temptation is, modern people, is we read them, and we're like, okay, these are like news reports. There's Jesus doing this, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did that, and Jesus did that. All right, and it's kind of like these random stories they are just telling us, like a news reporter. The important thing to remember here is that Mark has an agenda, he has an agenda. The four gospel writers have an agenda. The four gospels—you read them—they're—they're they're different. They have a different flavor. They have a different. Sometimes things are in different orders of like stories happen different orders, and you know we might think, oh, well, there's like something wrong with my Bible. It's broken. No, these guys have an agenda, and so each one of them aren't just historians writing down what happened. Think of them more like skillful artistic editors. They're crafting the message with an agenda. So a better way to think of the Gospels might be more like a documentary, right? When you watch a documentary, it's got a point, right? It's crafting the story, and and they're they're true events, absolutely, but it's crafting the story to get a point across, and so Mark has an agenda. So what Mark does, this is so cool, Mark brackets, not just with like random events that he was told but an intentional selection of similar events and similar teachings that Jesus makes that explain, that explain the stories in between. So here's what happens. This quote from Isaiah that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 4, it's going to be followed in Mark chapter 8 by a quote from Jeremiah that says the same thing. Chapter 8, we're going to read this in a little while. And we're going to, oh, that sounds real familiar because it is. And from chapters four to eight, what Mark is actually going to do is he's going to show all the ways that the disciples are the ones who see but never perceive and hear but never understand. And those who we thought were the outsiders uh, were the ones who actually see and hear and perceive Jesus accurately. Okay, makes sense? So he's going to kind of flip what we expect that Jesus is saying at first, uh, because we're like, oh my goodness, that's so harsh of Jesus, you know, he doesn't want people to believe. No, 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 no. What actually, this is Mark's way of revealing to us that the hardness of heart that is portrayed here is actually on the part of the disciples, and it's the outsiders who get Jesus more accurately. This is so cool. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, okay? Buckle up, kids. This is really cool. I'm going to go fast. Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm, and the disciples react, and he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Later in chapter 6, they see Jesus walking on the water and he says, take courage. Don't be afraid. So he climbed in the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were what? Hardened. Hardened. What a weird way to describe the disciples. That's, Aaron, that's Isaiah Jeremiah language. Mark is pulling in that word on purpose. Interesting way to describe disciples. In uh, chapter 7, by the way, you never want to hear this from Jesus, "Are you so dull?" Why don't you see that, you know, nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile you? And if you look at for these statements from Jesus to the disciples, they're all over the place. Meanwhile, in chapters 4 through 8, There are the outsiders who get it, and it's fascinating. Some of these we've looked at over the last couple weeks. In chapter 5, there's the demon-possessed man. He's cutting himself. He lives in a cemetery among pigs. I mean, you could not be, to a Jew, more radioactively unclean. And Jesus comes and he heals the Gentile and he blesses him and he recognizes Jesus for who he is. He wants to travel with him and Jesus is like no, you stay and be an evangelist. You don't need to be a disciple. You just need to be an evangelist. And then he comes across a man named Jairus. J- I hate this word so much all the time. Jairus maybe? The synagogue leader who he has a daughter who has died and he begs Jesus would you heal my daughter? And so there is here's an outsider who immediately recognizes. He responds to Jesus. Jesus immediately responds to him, he takes the little girl by the hand and says to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up, walked around. In chapter 5, we looked at this story. The woman with the issue of blood interrupts the whole uh, dead girl story and touches the hymn of Jesus. And Jesus is like, daughter, your faith has healed you and go in peace, be freed from your suffering. Chapter 7, this is interesting. This woman, it, basically, she is a, a mixed race, Gentile woman with a demon-possessed daughter, you could not get, like, more sort of, in Jewish culture, radioactively unclean than this. this in, in first century uh, Near East, this is not what you want on your LinkedIn profile. Like, like mixed race, Gentile woman with a demon-possessed daughter. And, um, and, and so she comes in, she has this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus is so impressed by her faith and her insight, what she gets. He heals her daughter. Meanwhile... The further we read along, and all these stories sprinkled throughout, the disciples' hearts are growing harder uh, as the story progresses. And there's, there's all these outsiders who are these unclean, demon-possessed people who are literally seeing and recognizing Jesus. And that's the point of this section. And Mark does these little brackets. He does another one that we'll look at in another week. But this is amazing. It's the point that there are these people who should recognize Jesus and they don't, and the ones who shouldn't do. And this all comes to a head in chapter 8. This is the other end of the bracket. So in chapter 8, Jesus is uh, he's at the tail end of two huge miraculous feedings, the 5,000 and the 4,000. And these are like really profound lessons that the disciples seem to miss. And this is the culmination of this whole section. So he gathers the disciples after they have fed the 4,000. And he says this in chapter 8. Listen, guys. Be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, if you watch uh, cooking videos on uh, Instagram like I do, or you are homeschooled and you know this kind of stuff and you sewed your own clothes, uh, you know that yeast is something you put into bread To make it rise. But in biblical terms, it was also used metaphorically to talk about something that infects everything else. And so here Jesus is using this metaphorically, saying, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, because just a little bit of hypocrisy is just gonna ruin your whole life. I was homeschooled, by the way, I'm not making fun of homeschool people. The disciples, so Jesus tells us, what do the disciples do? They misunderstand, shocker. Uh, And then they discuss it among themselves. And they're like, okay, well, Jesus must have been saying this because we didn't have any bread yesterday to feed the people. And Jesus, um, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you still talking about having no bread? You could just hear his, like, face plant, right? Do you still, and this is a quote from Jeremiah, Jeremiah, not see or understand are your hearts hardened, do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And now Jesus brings full circle, this whole seeing, not seeing, hardened hearts full thing, full circle. Uh, because he and he and, and, and because sure enough we've seen the disciples kind of unravel over the four chapters. Insiders are getting it left and right. Uh, and and he finally looks at the and he spells out really clearly who the four soils are really represent them, them. And the disciples are still struggling with who Jesus is and what he's done. And the word that Jesus has been sowing, it has not taken root in them. Now, one more passage to look at so we can make sense of all this. Later, after this episode, Jesus and the disciples go to a village. Verse 29, Jesus asks them a famous question that we we looked at last week. Okay, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? What about you guys? Because, you know, there's lots of people who are still unclear about who Jesus is. Even his own family, remember, they think he's crazy. That's about as insider as you get, and they don't get it. Right? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. And we think, yes, Peter's got it. Finally, this is awesome. They totally understand perfect. Praise the Lord for Peter. Yes, let's give Peter a big hand. And then verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's his title for himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now we hear that and we're like, yeah, that's Good Friday and Easter. Yeah, that's is, is part of a really cool story. But for them, Jesus was a king. That's what Messiah meant. As we all know, kings don't get crucified. The most degrading, unspeakable form of death they could conceive of back then. They don't go to the capital of the nation and immediately get put to death in some torturous way. Kings don't get executed just when they're about to take the throne. But Jesus spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside, and what? Rebuked him. Peter. Oh, man. Why? Because that's not how these things are supposed to go. Peter's like, this is not what I signed up for. Right? Messiahs are supposed to come, kick out the Romans, vindicate Israel, begin new creation, not be rejected and then suffer and be killed in the most unspeakably degrading, humiliating way way possible. So Peter rebukes Jesus, like you do. And I mean, he was just, he just said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. We had so much hope for Peter. and It lasted like 10 seconds. And you realize, oh, Peter still has no clue what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He's still on the outside. And then notice Jesus' response. Jesus turned and he looked at the disciples He rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He's saying, Peter, you're out in front of me. You're trying to lead me. You need to get back and follow me. And he uses this word, Satan. It's hasatan in the original. It's the word for adversary. It's it's actually not a name, but a title. This satan. Now, remember in chapter 4, we talked about the soil where Satan comes, snatches the seed away once the word is preached. This is what's happening here, because the word that the farmer is sowing, turns out that word is not just, hey, God is king, and he's arrived, but it's God is king, he is present in Jesus, and Jesus is going to suffer and die. And the thing that's so offensive about this word that makes it difficult to understand is that God is going to win by losing that God is going to conquer by dying. He is going to allow his Messiah to die a shameful death. And Peter, man, Peter cannot handle it. Mark is revealing to us just what it looks like when Satan snatches the seed away. Here's the deal, guys. See, Satan, actually, if you read the whole story, he is fine with Jesus being king. He is. Just as long as Jesus didn't go to the cross first. That's what the temptations were all about. Remember the temptations, the 40 days? That's what Lent is all about. Those 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted by. Satan was trying to tempt him with what? Power, right? Satan's telling Jesus, you can have all the power you want. Okay, Jesus, let's admit it. You're the son of God. All right, yeah, you're, you're great. You're going to win. But take the throne by force, right, Jesus. That way, when your followers emulate you, they'll look just like the world does have all the power, Satan's saying, have all the power, just whatever you do, don't do it by modeling love and sacrifice, please. And here Jesus is insisting he has to suffer first. And the disciples are like, no stinking way. That's the hardness of their hearts. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Human concerns. He doesn't even call it evil concerns. He says human concerns. Right? That's what all of us are tempted with every single day, human concerns. Are you with me so far? All right, hang with me. For, we're almost done, kids, but there, this has all been building to this text, so I need you to just come back just for a second. Here we go. In, in chapter 8, 34, here we go. Jesus called the crowd. Now he calls the crowd. He gets everybody in there along with the disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, again, we as church people are very familiar with these words. We just don't really believe them, right? Because think about what we've done to it. What have we done? For Christians, the cross is a place where Jesus died, so I don't have to. For Jesus, the cross is a way of life, it's a way of love, it is a way of entirely, uh, an entirely different way of orienting yourself in a posture of others-centered love. And we, we parade around this symbol up on our wall, right? It's like a decoration on our wall. It's a symbol of Roman torture. We put it on our jewelry, it's on our bumper stickers, and we see that cross in the wall, and we think, yeah, yeah, that's, that's where Jesus died. Thanks, Jesus, right? And Jesus presents this as a symbol as a place where we join him in his death. In other words, the cross is a way of life. And what does that way of life consist of? Well, he tells us in the next verse, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And the word for lose here is actually the word for destroy. Right so whoever wants to save their life has to destroy it but whoever destroys their life for me and for the sake of the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This is the part that's so offensive to the disciples. We can understand that because it's still offensive to Christians thousands of years later. People on crosses give up their rights. People on crosses relinquish their rights. They surrender their rights. They don't press for their rights. The cross is not a symbol of self-promotion and, and glorification or self-interest. People on crosses have died to the world and to themselves. I know this is kind of a hard word, right? This is, this is tough. And this is heavy. And it's kind of like, Scott, you know, can we talk about the three ways to financial success or the four ways I could be a better parent? You know, think of that as after Easter, Alright? That's that, That's that's later. We're in Lent, so I just encourage you right now, don't run from this. Just embrace it. Lean in. Le- lean into the hard word. There's a reason why the, the church has these seasons, okay? That's really... I'm just talking you off the cuff here. This is just... We have these seasons for a reason, right? So that we understand there is a rich tapestry to this walk of Christ. Yes, there's there's the life of faith and the life of healing and all this kind of stuff, but there is also the life of crucifixion. And so this is the season where we lean in and we let God just minister to us and work on us in the way that we need, right? And I'm telling you, Resurrection Sunday means something more than it's ever meant to you before when you do this, when you lean in. So we wanna ask ourselves a couple of questions as we close this morning. First of all, Do I have more in common with the disciples who thought they were insiders but were actually really mentally stuck? They were on the outside of what Christ was all about. Or do I relate more to the outsiders in Jesus' day who were actually much more on the inside of what he was up to? And secondly, we could reflect on this question. What is it like to bear a cross and to die to oneself? I mean, if we join Jesus in his death, and I realize, I know this kind of language can be abused for sure, but when I think about, guys, when I think about uh, how so much of my Christian experience was spent seeking the very things that Jesus said not to seek, following the very temptations that Jesus resisted, the temptations of power that he resisted, why has so much of my Christian life and spent avoiding discomfort, avoiding suffering, avoiding persecution. And what popular Christian culture tells you is that the whole point of discipleship, the whole point of coming to, to a good church is because Jesus is going to help you be a better person, right? Jesus is going to help your marriage. He's going to help your business. And we sell Jesus like he's an add-on product to some consumer thing, right? He's an add-on to some consumer product. We sell him like he's, like he's an extended warranty for the car. Like, your life is pretty good, but just add a little Jesus, it's like amazing, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. To follow me means I ascend my throne on a cross and I govern a kingdom defined by a cross and everyone who is properly Christian bears their cross and follows me. His language, not mine. Now, does this have anything to do with Jesus' desire to bless you? No, he does, right? Does this have anything to do with his desire that your needs be met so you can be a blessing to others? Absolutely not. Does this have anything to do with God's desire to heal you and deliver you from bondage? No, he desires to heal you and deliver you from bondage. Does it have anything with his desire to fill you with his spirit so that you can operate in spiritual gifts, Absolutely not. In fact, I would say that you need those spiritual gifts in order to be able to do this, right? You're going to be a miserable person if you try to do all this in your own power, just as a human being, right? It's like like Pastor was talking about earlier, right? We're not meant to just walk around and be like all mopey. I'm I'm making this sacrifice and look at me. I'm just so woe is me. No, no, no. He called us to live lives of joy and peace. How do you think that's possible? He's also calling us to let go of the things of the world that causes stress and striving and all this kind of thing. Cross people are people who aren't fighting for their rights. They're not living in fear and paranoia. And if all of this that Jesus said is true, that we have died to the world and we stand to inherit all the things in the age to come, it's just so weird that we're so afraid, isn't it? It's so weird that we're so anxious. It's so weird that we spend our lives just obsessing and grasping after the things we don't have. And it's so weird that we constantly are making enemies of other people. And it's so weird that we think political power will save us. And guys, it's almost not fair. It really, when you think about you and me, you know, Jesus had that thing about the, the, it's easier for a camel to was it the rich the camel to go through the needle then a rich man to get into heaven he wasn't saying I don't think he was saying that condemningly like you terrible rich people I think he was saying it sympathetically I think he was taking pity because that's us the deck is kind of stacked against you and me when you think about it we live in an American culture that worships status and power and pleasure and glory that is the the waters we swim in right and, and then what happens is that we Christianize that so much so that we even equate the, you know, if you look at the Christian magazines, we equate the, the biggest and glitteriest churches with the best ones. Those are the best ones, right? Or the, the wealthiest preachers, those are the best ones. And the most boisterous, obnoxious leaders, those are our standard bearers. So for, the, for us, this is a hard word. I get it. This, the deck is stacked against us, guys, as Americans, We are raised in a self-absorbed culture of greed and power and rage. I mean, just turn on the news, flip to a news website. What is every story about? Greed, power, rage. Greed, power, rage. That is the culture we live in. And so it makes being a cross-shaped person feel really unnatural. And it is. It is completely unnatural. But this is the way of Christ that we've been invited into this is the way. Amen. This, this is the way we, we live by dying. This is the way of leading by serving. That's the way of Christ. We lead by serving. The way of utter, absolute self-surrender for the sake of other people. That's the cross. If I could just have a, one more minute. I was thinking about this. There's, there's two... Uh, things that are considered like ordinances in our church. You ever wonder like what kind of church you belong to? I don't know, some people might, you, if you've been coming here for a little while and you're like, what kind of church is this? What am I exactly? Because we don't have like, some churches have it r- you know on the sign out by the road really plainly like we're not generations baptist church or generations methodist church or generations episcopal church you know we're just generations church you might be wondering like who do i belong to uh who you, just so you know in case anybody asks you you belong to the community of evangelical protestants right we're evangelical protestants and i hate both of those words really but that's who we are we can't help it in in as an evangelical Protestant church, we have two ordinances that we are commanded. We recognize two ordinances in the Bible that we are commanded to practice. Ordinances are like holy rites or holy liturgies. Um, You don't think about it this way, but this is what is true. Water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Water baptism, Lord's, or communion. Water baptism, think about that. That is the entrance ritual into the Christian faith for us, is water baptism. It is the symbolic joining of my life to Christ's death. That's the the entrance ritual. The abandonment of power and power-seeking and glorification. The cross-shaped life, it looks nothing like glory or status or wealth or success. And the thing that the disciples keep missing is that the kingdom comes, and yes, it is going to be glorious, but it's the outsiders. In Jesus' day, the people who have nothing, why do they... Seem to get it so quickly. They have nothing in the world. These people who are so destitute, all they can do is just fall down at Jesus' feet and beg him for help. They are the ones who get that it comes through suffering because they themselves are suffering. They are suffering. And to them, what Jesus reaches out to with is good news. It's good news to them, right? Uh, You remember the story of the rich young ruler? It's a beautiful story. I wish i put it up here. But the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and it says that Jesus loved him. It doesn't say that about, like, everybody he came across. I'm sure he did. But it actually points out Jesus loved this man, just meeting him. And I want us to see that story. Go back and read it sometime as us, because we're him. In this terrible, destitute age that Jesus was born into, he kind of was, was doing all right. Somehow he just fell into the right way. He, you know, he was You know, we might say privileged. He had money. He had education. He was doing okay. Rich young ruler, and Jesus it says loved him, and to him it says the gospel was a major bummer in the Scott translation. He went away discouraged. He went away. He couldn't handle it. The Bible says that to those in power, to those who are in privilege, the cross is a stumbling block. But to the rest of the world, it is vindication. So baptism, when we do water baptism, that is the place where we identify with the one who died for the sake of the world. And then what else do we practice? We practice communion, right? The Lord's Supper. Well, think about why in a few weeks there'll be Easter Sunday. Why, do you, why is it that every Easter Sunday, as we celebrate resurrection, we take communion? Because as Christians, at the heart of our worship, we celebrate a death think about that. That's, that's kind of weird. And I kind of never want to lose or forget how weird that is. That at the heart of our worship, we celebrated death, that a symbol of Roman torture has become for us the ultimate symbol of hope and victory and the means by which I experience peace and joy mm, and meaning. And that communion meal, that bread and the juice that we're going to take on Easter Sunday together, and that meal, it's, it's not just something that happened for us. It's actually our job description. It represents our call. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We are to be for this world. Not, of course, not in some salvation sense. Jesus died for the sins of the world once and for all. We're not dying for the sins of the world, right? That's already done. But in the same way that Jesus gave of himself for the sake of others... We join him in that. And we do it in 100,000 different ways every day. The kindness that we show other people, the kindness we show not only our neighbors, but our enemies, the people who speak bad against you. And the ways that you give of your hard-earned money that you work really hard for, you give it to those people in Africa right now. and the people You know, what you give to the people in Guatemala, the ways that you serve your fellow community. <sighs> to bear our cross, to bear our cross, the apostles in the New Testament called it, a privilege so as Christians the challenge for us the call the call is always in front of us guys every day the call is in front of us not just the invitation that one time back at summer camp to say yes to salvation and one and we're done not just to say thanks for going to the cross Jesus whew thank you but the ongoing invitation to us for believers for disciples is to follow him to walk in his steps, to be covered in the dust of our rabbi in all the most wonderful ways, and to bear our cross as he taught us to do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord God. This is a hard word for us, I know, but Lord, we bless you. We are so grateful for you, Lord. Lord, give us grace and mercy. We need wisdom, Lord God. Give us wisdom, Father. There may be some of the things that are said today that that are stirring in us and maybe some things that we're not really sure we understand or even agree with. And I thank you, Lord God, that you were used to that. Lord God, we ask for your wisdom. As we realize that this invitation to follow you, Lord, is much more profound than we might have assumed at first. So God, we ask you to work in us in this season. Work through the power of your spirit, the power of your word, Lord God, to form and shape us into the community that looks and talks and acts like Jesus. We love you, Lord. Renew our hearts, Lord God. Revive us, Lord Lord. Revive us, Lord God, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways and represent you well in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Friends, we stand to your feet today as our prayer partners are coming forward right now. And I wanna offer a special invitation to you, to all of you. You may have never really said yes to Jesus before, and this is a great opportunity to say yes, to come forward and let these guys pray with you, to help you take that that next step. And it really is the first step of the most amazing life you can imagine, the life of trust, the life of surrender, the life of seeing Jesus just reveal himself to you and show up in so many ways. But I also want to invite those of you, you might be a disciple and you might have been one of the ones in the boat. You thought you had it all figured out, but you find sometimes you really don't understand this Jesus. And you find sometimes your hands have gotten so full of the things of the world and you just need that opportunity to once again say yes to Jesus and to lay it down and let him fill you afresh. Let his spirit come into you so that you can walk in his will and delight in his ways. So if that's you, I encourage you to come forward and let Jesus bless you all over again. Amen. My brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and fill you with his peace and his joy today. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.